Let's open our Bibles together to the book of Daniel, chapter 11, and verse 36. Daniel eleven thirty-six for our message from the Word of God this morning. You'll find Daniel eleven thirty-six on page nine eighteen if you're using the church Bible. Today's date is June sixth, twenty twenty-one. Picnic Sunday, if you're watching the video and wondering why the pastor's dressed down a little bit, that's why. Picnic Sunday. Our text this morning is going to be in Daniel 11, verses 36, right on down to the end of the chapter in verse 45. And the title of this morning's message is The King of the Tribulation Jungle. The King of the Tribulation Jungle. And we begin with the story of a lion who one day was feeling pretty full of himself. <laughs> So he grabbed a monkey by the throat and asked him, Who's the king of the jungle? Now the monkey said, You are Leo. Everybody knows that. Next, the lion grabbed a gazelle by the throat and asked him, Who's the king of the jungle? After he got the same answer, he proceeded to strut right up to an elephant and ask, Who's the king of the jungle? <laughs> well, the elephant answered by wrapping his trunk around the lion and slamming him against a tree a couple of times and pitching him across the river where he landed bruised and bloodied. After he came to his senses, he called out to the elephant, Hey, you didn't have to get so mean just because you didn't know the answer. <laughs> well, as we return to our study of Daniel chapter 11, we see that the angel Gabriel, who's been telling Daniel about the tribulation, now starts to focus on the king of the tribulation. I direct your attention at this time to Daniel 11.36, where Gabriel says to Daniel, and the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for 
that that is determined shall be done. Now, first of all, when it says that Antichrist is going to do according to his will, I want you to compare that to what the Lord Jesus Christ said in your first reference in John 6.38. He said, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And he was talking, of course, about the will of God the Father. Now I want you to think about that, folks. Because every time you decide to do what you want to do instead of what God wants you to do, you're acting more like the Antichrist than the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, one of the reasons the Antichrist is called the beast is because a wild beast does whatever he wants to do. He does according to his will. And do you know what Antichrist's followers are going to be called in your next reference? Speaking of them, Peter says in 2 Peter 2, 10-12, they are self-willed, natural, brute beasts. So, when you do according to your will instead of according to God's will, you're acting more like the followers of the Antichrist than you are acting like the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're doing what verse 36 says that Antichrist will do. You're exalting yourself. Now that word exalt means to lift up. You see that in your next reference, Isaiah 33.10. Now will I rise, saith the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I lift myself up. Well, you know, when you exalt yourself instead of the Lord, you're lifting yourself up over him, as well as over the other people. But verse 36 says that Antichrist is going to exalt and magnify himself above every god. And that would include the gods that Satan tempted Eve with. You see them in verse 5 of Genesis 3. Remember how God told Adam, In the day ye thereof, ye shall be... No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Satan said to Eve, In the day ye eat thereof, you'll be as the gods. Those gods are the fallen angels that were flying around in Eden, and she wanted to be like them. Because men are lower than angels, as David prayed in your next reference in Psalm 8, 4 and 5. What is man that thou art mindful of him, David prayed? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. And Antichrist 
he's not going to like that because he's just going to be a man. That's what Ezekiel says in your next reference. Ezekiel 28.2 Thou hast said, I am a God. Thou hast said, I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas. Yet thou art a man, and not God, though thou set thine heart as the heart of God. Antichrist, he's not going to be happy with being a man. He's not going to be satisfied with being a man who's lower than those angels. He'll want to exalt himself, this verse says, above every angel God. Just like Lucifer did in Isaiah 14, 13. Remember, he said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Well, those stars, folks, are angels. One of the verses that proves that sometimes stars represent angels is Revelation 1.20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, the Lord tells John, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Well, Lucifer wanted to exalt his throne above the stars of God. He was just an angel, just like them. But he wanted to be above the angels. He wanted to be like God. And Antichrist will too. But do you know who God has exalted above the angels? You! What does it say in 1 Corinthians 6.3? We are the ones who someday shall judge angels. Now, does that give you any idea of how much Satan must hate you and me? I mean, you've got what he wants. You think maybe it's a good idea to be here to learn the Word of God? To learn how to defend yourself about someone who hates you that much? I think so. Now, when verse 36 says that Antichrist will also speak against the God of gods, Moses tells us who that is in your next reference. Deuteronomy 10.17 The Lord your God is the God of gods. God the Father is the God of the angels, folks. And verse 36 says that the Antichrist is going to speak against the God of gods. Now we're not told what he'll say when he speaks against God. But I looked, and you know there's only one time in the Bible where it says that anybody spoke against God and then it tells us what he said when he spoke against God. It's when the king of Assyria did what it says in Second Chronicles 32 and verse 17. He wrote letters to rail on the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him, saying... In other words, he's going to tell you what words he used to speak against God. As the gods of the other, of the nations of the other lands have not delivered their people out of my hand, the king of Assyria said, 
so shall not the God of Hezekiah deliver his people out of mine hand. So I think that Antichrist is going to speak against God that way. By saying that very same thing to the Jews. Your God is not going to be able to deliver you from me. And you know what? The Bible has a word for talk like that. In your next reference, speaking of the Antichrist, it says in Revelation 13.5, there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. It is blasphemous to say that God can't protect his people. Because he can. Isn't it great to know that he'll protect us until we're safe in glory? But now, as you look at verse 36, you might be wondering why it calls those words that he'll speak marvelous words against the God of gods. Well, that word marvel in the Bible just means to be amazed. Like when the Jews at Pentecost heard the disciples speaking in tongues, and in your next reference said in Acts 2.7, they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, aren't these all which speak Galileans? They were amazed that anybody could speak in languages that they didn't know. And people are going to be amazed that Antichrist will... Speak that way against God. And when verse 36 says that he'll prosper, you know what it means to prosper, right? <laughs> it means to get rich, like it does in your next reference. Psalm 73, 12, the ungodly who prosper in the world, they how do they prosper? They increase in riches. And Antichrist is going to get rich too. He's going to get rich the same way the makers of masks did during the pandemic. <laughs> when the government decided that nobody could walk into a store without a mask to buy or sell, well, those mask makers made unfathomable amounts of money worldwide. And folks, when the beast issues his mark, and people can't buy or sell without it. He'll get rich too. And he won't have to share it with other mark issuers. Because <laughs> he'll be the only one issuing that kind of mark in that day. He's going to get rich. But verse 36 says he'll only prosper until the indignation is accomplished. You say, well, what's an indignation? Well, that word indignant, I looked it up, it means anger and disgust. <laughs> like when James and John, in your next reference, asked the Lord if they could sit on his right hand and left hand in the kingdom. Look what it says in Matthew twenty twenty four. When the ten, the other ten apostles, heard about that, they were moved with indignation 
against the two brethren. They said, who do they think they are (laughs) wanting to rule over everything with Christ? Well, folks, that's how God is going to feel about the Antichrist. Who does he think he is wanting to rule over everything by himself? He's going to be indignant. You say, well, what does verse 36 mean when it says the indignation will be accomplished? Well, what does that word accomplish mean in Jeremiah 44.25? Ye will surely accomplish your vows and surely uh, perform your vows. Well, As you can see, accomplish means to do what you said you would do. And in the tribulation, folks, God isn't going to just sit around feeling indignant about what Antichrist is doing and saying. Eventually, he's going to accomplish his indignation and do what he said he would do in this verse. And put an end to his prosperity. Put an end to his blasphemy. Verse 36 says that that's determined to be done. And it'll get done. But in saying all of that, Gabriel is getting ahead of the story, folks. He's getting ahead of the story because he wants Daniel to understand that Antichrist isn't going to prosper forever. But as we read on in verse 37, Gabriel goes back to describing the Antichrist. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. You say, well, wait a minute, who are Antichrist's fathers? Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. Well, remember, Antichrist is going to have to be Jewish if he thinks he wants to convince the Jews that he's their Messiah, right? So his fathers are going to be the same fathers that Peter talked to the Jews about in your next reference. Acts 3.13 The God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son Jesus. Antichrist fathers are going to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the God of Antichrist fathers is God. That's why in verse 37 our King James translators put a capital G on the word God there. So God's the one that Antichrist isn't going to have any regard for. And you know what having no regard for someone means, don't you? It means he'll he'll put God on the pay-no-mind list. (laughs) And when it says he won't regard the desire of women either, that's the verse that makes Christians think that Antichrist might be gay. But that's not what that means, folks. And it doesn't mean he'll be straight, but he'll be so driven in life that he won't take time to desire a woman. No, no. He said, well, what does it mean? 
Well, notice that it doesn't say he won't have a desire for women. It says he won't regard the desire of women. So what's the desire of women? Well, in your next reference, look what God said to Satan about the first woman in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, and it, her seed, shall bruise thy head. When God told Satan that Eve's seed would bruise his head, she started to to desire that she would bear that seed. Then later, after God told Abraham that a Jewish woman would bear the seed that would bruise Satan's head, the desire of every Jewish woman became to bear the Messiah. He's the desire of women here, folks. He's the one that Antichrist will have no regard for. And when verse 37 adds that he won't regard any God, well, we talked about that. It means he won't have any regard for any of the lesser gods among the angels either. Instead, verse 37 says he'll magnify himself above all. And that tells us when this is going to happen. Because it's going to happen when the Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4, that that man of sin, the son of perdition, opposeth and exalteth himself. Well, there's what we're studying. Above all that is called God. Angels, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. He's going to exalt himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And we've said many times, we've seen many times, that that's going to happen in the middle of the tribulation when he declares that he's God. But as we read on, Gabriel's going to jump around in the timeline here again. I told you last Sunday that Bible prophecy always does that, jumps around in the timeline. And in the next verse, Gabriel is going to tell us what Antichrist will do before he claims to be God in verse 38. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces and a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Now that word forces, as you can imagine, the word forces refers to military forces like it does in your next reference in Jeremiah 18 and verse 21 pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Jeremiah 40, verse 7, and a bunch of other verses talk about the captains of the forces, which were in the fields. Even they 
and their men. You know, even today the word forces refers to military might, right? Recently on May 21st, we observed Armed Forces Day, a day that we set aside to honor all five branches of the military. And the God of forces here. That's talking about God the Father. That's why our King James translators rightly put a capital G on God there. He's called the God of forces because he's in charge of heaven's forces. The forces that the Apostle John saw in your next reference. When the Lord gave him a vision of his second coming in Revelation 19.14, the armies which were in heaven followed him at his second coming. And now we're talking about forces, folks. But now, verse uh, 38 here raises a question. As we just read in our last verse, in verse 37, that Antichrist will have no regard for God. So, how come verse 38 says that he will honor the God of forces, the God of the armies of heaven? Well, you'll notice verse 38 says he'll honor God in his estate. Remember last week I said that a man's estate refers to his possessions, right? When a man dies, they have an estate sale where they sell his possessions. (laughs) And I also said that one of the things a king possesses is his kingdom. In your next reference, that's why when Queen Vashti did something that ticked the king off, (laughs) his advisors told him in Esther 119, let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. That's talking about her kingdom. So this reference to Antichrist's kingdom is a reference to his position as the king of Israel. And you know, as the king of a nation of Jews, he would have to honor the God of the Jews, wouldn't he? At least outwardly during that first half of the tribulation when he's trying to convince the Jews he's their Messiah, right? But you'll notice in verse 38 it says he'll also honor a God whom his fathers knew not. And the God who Abraham and Isaac and Jacob knew not was the false God known as Baal, B-A-A-L, which was really just another name for the devil. Now you might be thinking, well, How would a king of Israel get away with worshiping Baal? How would a king of Israel get away with worshiping the devil? Well, I almost laugh when I said that because if you know your Old Testament, you know that the Old Testament kings of Israel were always worshiping Baal and God at the same time. Like this. 
Ahab is a good reference of a uh, good example of that in your next reference in First Kings sixteen thirty and thirty one. Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him, worse than worst king they ever had, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Now, as the king of Israel, he still worshipped God outwardly. He just added the worship of Baal. And that's what Antichrist will do. Honor God and Baal. And the reason it says he'll honor the God of forces is because I think the way he'll honor the God of forces is by saying God gave him the force that he's going to show when he does what Revelation 6.2 says and go forth conquering and to conquer. He's probably going to give the God of forces credit for helping him do that conquering. Give him that force. But in his heart, he's worshiping Baal. And verse 38 says he'll worship Baal with gold and silver and precious stones. Well, that's kind of like what God said about the Jews in your next reference in Hosea 2.8. I multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. That's one of the many verses that talks about how God enriched the people of Israel by multiplying their gold and silver. But imagine how he felt when they took those riches and used them to worship Baal. Well, Antichrist is going to do the same thing. And verse 39, our next verse, tells us how he'll worship Baal with gold and silver. Verse 39, Thus shall he do in the most strong holds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory. And he'll cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. Now, the strongholds it's talking about, I believe, are the governments of the kings of the earth. And I think you'll see that in a minute. Antichrist is going to acknowledge the governments of the kings of the earth by increasing their glory, it says. And you know what makes a kingdom glorious in the eyes of the world? Money. <laughs> That's what the word glory means there, just like it does in your next reference. Isaiah 61.6, 6, you'll eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their riches, no, in their glory, shall ye boast yourselves. The glory of the nations is money, folks. The more money a nation has, the more glorious they are considered by the rest of the world. And Antichrist is going to acknowledge the nations by increasing their money, by cutting them in on the profits that he's going to be getting from the religious system 
he's going to establish in Babylon. We get the best description of what they'll be up to in that religion <laughs> after Babylon is destroyed in Revelation 18, 2 to 13. Babylon the Great has fallen, John sees in this vision of the future. All nations and the kings of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. The merchants of the earth shall weep. For no man buyeth their merchandise any more. The merchandise of gold, silver, precious stones. Hey, didn't we just read about them in Daniel 11? Sure. And of pearls and ivory, precious wood, marble, and the souls of men. Does that sound like a religious system to you? If it doesn't, means you haven't studied how Rome's been conducting business for the past 17 centuries. Folks, I've told you, Catholicism is the modern manifestation of Baal worship. It's a, it's a pseudo-Christianity. The way Baal worship in the Old Testament was a pseudo-Judaism. And recently, I found this very interesting, recently the Vatican's economic minister did what none of their economic ministers ever did before and admitted to what the Catholic Church is worth. He estimated their net worth at $4.8 billion, with a B. So imagine how rich Antichrist's religion based in Babylon is going to be. Now, in verse 39, I think this explains what verse 39 means when it says he'll cause them to rule over many. Because, you know, Rome, that's not just a religion, folks. It's been a political power that has ruled over the nations for centuries. And Antichrist religion is also going to be a political power. Now, at the end of verse 39 there, when it says he'll divide the land for gain, I can't be sure of what that means, but I'll tell you what I think. I think it means that, well, first of all, we know the land is probably the land of Israel. And I think it means that Antichrist is going to divide the land of Israel and sell it to his ten kings who are going to be siding with him. You remember in our scripture reading this morning in Psalm 83, we saw that those ten kings will be kings of nations in the Mideast, right? And all of those nations of the Mideast have always wanted the land of Israel for themselves, right? And Antichrist, he's going to come up with the perfect solution. Just divide Israel into ten parts. That way all of those angry Arabs in all of those countries are going to end up being happy. 
If I'm right, it would be the reverse of what God did in Deuteronomy 32a. In Deuteronomy 32a, it says, When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel, the number 12. God divided the world up into 12 parts because someday in the kingdom he wants the 12 tribes of Israel to rule those 12 sections of the world. Well, I think Antichrist is going to do the opposite. He'll divide Israel up according to the number 10, the number of the Gentiles, and then divide it up among his 10 kings. You say, well, 10 is the number of the Gentiles? Well, it's the number of most of the Gentiles on this planet. Did you know we're one of the few countries in the world that don't use the metric system? The metric system that is based on what number? The number 10. Our measuring device has 12 inches, according to the number of the children of Israel. Isn't that interesting? But you know, later on today, if you'll go back and study Psalm 83, that list there of Antichrist allies, you'll notice that Egypt is not one of them. So Egypt is not going to get a slice of the pie in Israel when Antichrist divides Israel up among them. And that explains verse 40 in your Bible, as we go back to your Bible now. Verse 40 says, And at that time, and at the time of the end, shall the king of the south push at the Antichrist. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen with many ships. And he'll enter into the countries and overflow and pass over. Well, if you've been with us for the last couple studies, you know who the king of the south is. He's the king of Egypt. Because remember, directions in the Bible are always given in relation to Israel. Because that's God's land. So verse 40 is saying that Egypt is going to attack the king of the north. That's the Assyrian. That's the Antichrist. And when Egypt attacks the Antichrist, folks, he's going to find... You don't tug on Superman's cape. How many of you remember that song? Ah, right. Well, listen, when Egypt tugs on Antichrist's cape, verse 40 says that Antichrist is going to come at him with all the force that he can muster. Ships and horsemen and chariots. And in verse 41... It says he'll enter also into the glorious land of Israel. And many countries will be overthrown. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. Now, you look at verse 41 and say, well, if we're talking about the Antichrist here, and it says he'll enter into the glorious land of Israel, I thought he lived in Israel. Well, he does, but once the Antichrist sells Israel 
to those ten kings, he's going to go back to Syria. And from there, he'll enter into the glorious land. But when he does that, he's going to be invading land that now belongs to his ten kings. So why would he do that? Why would he decide to turn on his own ten kings? Well, your next reference gives us the answer. It's because those ten kings are the ones who destroy his Babylon. Revelation 17, 1 to, 7, 1 to 16 says that great whore, Babylon the great, the ten kings are going to hate the whore and burn her with fire. So here in verse 41, when it says Antichrist will enter into the glorious land and many countries will be overthrown, ten of those many countries going to be his former allies, the ones listed in Psalm 83. But that verse says he won't overthrow three of those countries listed in Psalm 83. Edom and Moab and Ammon. Even though they're part of the ten kings that burned Babylon, he's not going to conquer them. And the reason is because God is not going to let him conquer them. You say, well, why not? (laughs) Well, it's because when the Antichrist starts persecuting Jews, folks, we know that at least one of those nations, Moab, is going to help hide the Jews from the Antichrist. Look what God says to Moab. In Isaiah 16, 3 and 4. Hide the outcasts. Betray not him that wandereth. Let mine outcast dwell with thee, Moab. Be thou a covert to them from the face of the spoiler. That's talking about the Antichrist, folks. And the indication here in verse 41 is that Edom and Ammon are going to join Moab in protecting the Jews and hiding the Jews from the spoiler, from the Antichrist. And when they do that, God is going to remember what he told the father of the Jews. In Genesis 12, 3, he told them, I'll bless them that bless thee. Curse them that curse thee. So when Edom and Ammon, and Moab bless the Jews by hiding them from the Antichrist, God is going to say, "Uh uh-uh, can't touch this. Don't destroy those three nations that blessed Israel. Even the awesome might of the Antichrist isn't going to be able to conquer those three kingdoms when God's protecting them, folks. So he's just going to move on to some nations that God isn't protecting, as we see as we read on in the next Three verses. Verse 42 says, He'll stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt. That's what makes me think that there's still some treasures over there they haven't done unearthed. <laughs> That's why everybody wanted Egypt in the last part of the last lesson we saw. 
and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. But, in verse 44, tidings out of the east and out of the north are going to trouble the Antichrist. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. Now those tidings out of the east, yeah, that way's east, <laughs> are probably going to be reports of what we talked about last week. Those ships from Chittim, from Europe, that are going to be attacking him. Uh, and when it talks about tidings out of the north, probably that's going to be rumors of the Russians looking down and saying, yeah, we want some of that too. <laughs> now, a lot of, I got to tell you, a lot of Bible teachers think that the king of the north here in Daniel 11 is the king of Russia. But we know it can't be. We've seen so many times it's the Antichrist. And here in this verse, we see that the king of the north can't be the king of Russia because when it says the tidings out of the north are going to trouble the Antichrist, well, if the king of the north is the king of Russia, let me ask you a question. What's north of Russia that would worry Russia? I mean, unless Santa militates the elves and, and, and gets them and amasses them into an army, nothing north of Russia could uh, could worry the, the king of uh, the king of the north, right? Well, it's got to be the Antichrist. Speaking of the Antichrist in verse forty-five, and he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. The two seas that it's talking about are the Great Sea, the Bible talks about, that's the Mediterranean, and the Dead Sea. And I looked it up, because you know me, I tell you all the time, I am geographically challenged in Stager, let alone in the Mideast. I looked it up, and do you know what city lies between those two seas? city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is where Antichrist is going to be in the holy mountain of Jerusalem when he meets the end that it talks about there in verse 45. And that's when the last reference will happen in Joel 2, verse 28. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, I will remove far off from you the northern army, the Antichrist's army, and will drive him into a land barren and desolate. Watch now, with his face toward the east sea, the Dead Sea, and his hinder part toward the utmost sea, the Great Sea, the Mediterranean, and his stink will come up and his ill savor shall come up because he's done these great things against God. Aren't you glad you're saved? <laughs> my pastor, my first pastor, Pastor Jeff Farrell, used to end so many of his messages that way, especially when reading about all the nasty things that are coming on this planet. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pause now to give you, first of all, thanks for the food that we're about to partake of at the, at the picnic and for those who prepared it. We ask that the fellowship we have around it might be rich and a blessing to our hearts as we do what the Apostle Paul says and abound in love toward one another. But then, Father, we're, we're especially thankful that we have the, the promise of the Apostle Paul that we're not going to be here to see any of this, that the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and will be caught up to meet him in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. 